0: This is Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Douglas Brinkley. Episode 5 starts after this.
1: Let me ask you about um, the places you taught, and just a very brief reaction. Tell me what you
0: remember about Hofstra on Long Island. Um, That the president, James Stewart, and a dean um, there that I became very fond of, that they just embraced me fully. And that meant a lot, meaning the love of the administration. This was, this was risky for any administration to unleash a guy like me. What could go wrong, right? A bunch of kids on a bus traveling the country with the university. And they went with it. And, uh, and then later they came and gave me an honorary doctorate from Hofstra for the Magic Bus because, um, you know, it became a big success. Tulane. Um, Tulane... You know, it's a just New Orleans. I want I the city is so spectacular and so fun. Um, but at the university itself, you know, it was um, it's good students. It's good. Um, I had a better time though at when I first came to the University of New Orleans. That was at first before you went to Dubai. yeah, because I had a. Um, That's where Ambrose had been, and he was retiring, and I took over the Eisenhower Center, and that we were collecting the oral histories of World War II vets. Now, the magic bus doesn't have much to do with the collecting of World War II vets, but I was able to fold this program into the Eisenhower Center because Steve thought it was a great idea. Uh, Steve Ambrose wrote the book on the Lewis and Clark Trail, and he traveled the entire Lewis and Clark Trail I went with them on a big hunk of the trail, and it was great. How'd you go? Uh, we went by um, canoe, uh, and we went over Lolo Pass. We did hiking. You know, Steve got very. I later went the whole Mississippi River with Steve. He was a real believer in this: that you take people to go. So you got to get the young people excited about history. How'd you meet him? Um, I met Steve. Liked my books on. He at heart Ambrose was a Cold War historian. Uh, famously wrote a two-volume biography of Eisenhower and three-volume on Nixon. Um, and I met him at American University. Here I had delivered um, a paper on the Berlin Wall crisis. I met Steve at that meeting, and then um, we stayed in touch. And I was teaching at Hofstra. And we, at Hofstra, you ask what I remember about it. We do these great presidential conferences. Still done. Yeah, and I did was in charge of the one on Theodore Roosevelt, which was a really good one because TR lived at Sagamore Hill just down the road, and it had a lot of local interest. And uh, but I think I, Ambrose, I believe it was the Nixon one, um, I believe. Um, They may have been a different president, uh, but he he was up there and we talked and he said, I want to, um, can you have dinner while I'm up here? And he said, I'll stay an extra night because I told him I had to run this conference and doing this and that. He said, I'm just going to hang an extra night. So we had dinner in Garden City, New York. And he said, "Uh, you're working on a book on Jimmy Carter and that's, uh, he's in the South and I'm retiring. And I want you to take over the Eisenhower Center. What was the Eisenhower Center? It was Steve's idea to collect D-Day, Battle of Normandy oral histories. And really expanded it into Battle of the Bulge on and on. But collecting the European theater at first, uh, oral histories of World War II vets. Which Steve right, right correctly used to say, I wish we had a tape recorder at Shiloh or, you know... Chancellorville or something and taped what occurred, we did have the opportunity to, due to communication to get the real stories of all these vets. You would think somebody would have been doing that, but nobody was. Ambrose was like the one that started interviewing and interviewing all the World War II vets it was a it was a great project that he initiated, and it led to the birth of the National World War II Museum.
1: How did he end but, up in New Orleans, and why the Eisenhower Center at the University? Well,
0: uh, that's a um, yeah. Steve was a um, colorful character. He came up during the What's 19- that mean? Um There's an eccentricity to him. He did his he played football. He's from Wisconsin. Played football uh, linebacker at the. Um, for the Badgers and was good starting, you know, linebacker. He then went on into history and uh, worked with um, the famous um, uh, T. Harry Williams, the biographer of Huey Long, he worked with at uh, Louisiana State. And one thing led to another, but Steve then worked with Milton Eisenhower at Johns Hopkins, the brother of Dwight. And Steve wrote some books. He wrote The History of West Point, still the best history of West Point. Eisenhower wrote the preface to Steve's book on the history of West Point. Um, But he then moved out to Kansas, and he got thrown out of the faculty at, um, at Kansas because he was part of a group that heckled Nixon coming to campus over the Vietnam War. He didn't like Nixon? He did not like the war. And it became a very famous incident because he was really with the. lot. He was a military historian with the Eisenhower brand. Um, looked like he was made to be a Hollywood, um, you know. Spielberg used to say that Steve looks like he's, you know, John Wayne or something. And, and he was part of a faculty group that was boo, boo. And got noticed, and they gave him a reprimand and all who, who of this. Who gave him a reprimand? The um, administration officials.
1: Why would they do that? And because did he have they tenure?
0: disrupted the president's speech. Did he have tenure? No. And he got um, left there, and it, it wasn't a very good thing to have on your resume that you got, you know, trying to get a job, and you, they they weren't going to recommend you because you did that, your last place of employment. Uh, but the University of New Orleans hired him, and so he was very grateful. And then he, he built this incredible career up for himself. Uh, uh, and Eisenhower and Nixon, who he actually ended up liking, except for the war, as he matured and, and grew older. But he caught—he was caught up in that fervor of that era, you know. And um, and so in New Orleans, they let you be what you are. And Steve would was eccentric in the sense when he would often wear. Like when he wrote on Meriwether Lewis, he tried to wear an outfit the way Lewis would wear an outfit. Or he would wear, you know, he would like really do emerge in history, like fall into, uh, you know, uh, you know, and sometimes I thought he, you know, he could talk like Nixon and Eisenhower. He had them, He when he lectured about them, he had their voices perfectly. And he would bring a dog to class And the dog would sit there and go retrieve students' papers, and the dog would go. When you put the paper down, the dog would put it. in Steve, instead of the kid walking up, that's what I mean by eccentric. Uh, You know, students loved that about him, but uh, he never fit in. Steve was his own guy. He was like kind of died early, died of cancer. He would smoke. Uh, Died in his sixties. One after the other, the cigarettes, light uh, and, uh, and light them up. But he was giving up the, he was quitting. And but and back to the Garden City dinner, he said, "I said, well, I'm I'm in New York at this point. I was living in uh, New York City in Manhattan, and um, and he said, look." I'll double your salary. Whatever your salary you're getting at Hofstra, I'll double it. Oh, that got my attention. (laughs) I started making, justifying it. You know, Eisenhower presidency, Carter's in the South, you know, New Orleans. uh, and uh, Money talks. Yeah, money talks. So it was, uh, uh, and he said, look, but if you don't like it, I'm going to hang out for a year. You come down, I'm going to run the Eisenhower Center for one year while you're there. Show you what's going on. And fair enough, if you don't want the job, leave. Give you one. one what year was this? Um, this was 93. What year did he die? I can't rem- remember right now, but I want to say 2002, something like that. And you took over... The, the uh, Maybe, like, maybe, or a year. maybe I, three. I or can four. look it up, but then. it's okay. Uh, I took it over right after he stepped down in the '90s, and I was I ran it, and I ran it a little more. Um, also, doing American Studies aspects to it. Uh, we would hold a lot of conferences. I, for example, had Kurt Vonnegut, who wrote Slaughterhouse, and Joseph Heller, who wrote Catch Twenty Two, come down to talk about their World War II experiences and. You know, I was doing some other things. Steve, meanwhile, got involved with building this World War II museum. And then I was on the board of the World War II museum. So I got to see how a museum gets built from the scratch up. By the way, he died in 2002, year, right? Yeah. He was
1: 66. <clears throat> so what's that, what's there? If you went to New Orleans, went to the Eisenhower Center, went to the World War II museum,
0: what are you gonna see? It's spectacular, I mean, We built in New Orleans one of the great museums in the world. Um, Nick Mueller, who was a good buddy of Steve Ambrose, really was the uh, CEO, energizer of it all. But they put together a top flight board. I was just the young interloper. These were like heavyweights from the corporate world. Um, They got congressional funding. It was Ted Stevens of Alaska, who really, and in a way, um, of Hawaii, that really pushed to get some of the federal funding, matching funds. But we made the great decision. It was going to be built on Lake Ponce train. And the idea was we can rebuild the Higgins boats that landed at Normandy, and people could crowd on 36 and go on one of those boats, see what it was like. Um, The little boats that landed on the beach. Yeah, and that's why it's in New Orleans. Andrew Jackson Higgins was from New Orleans, and Higgins Industry built these um the boats the landing craft boats that um, would have like let's just say 35 um soldiers in it and they're very we rebuilt them but they're very they were built kind of not flimsily but they were built for a purpose there are not a lot of them around they're, they've all deteriorated uh, but they would just come right in the open and then you'd storm the beach and, and it's iconic um and that, those boats were built and designed in New Orleans, and that gave Steve the justification to build first a D-Day Museum, and then it, it was so popular, it to the National World War II Museum. And it now is a major American tourist draw. I mean, the, the two of the best museums for people in the country are the World War One Museum in Kansas City and the World War II Museum in New Orleans it's has you know five theaters you it's we it collects war footage letters memorabilia i deal still uh, at least monthly with them because people write me i have all these letters of my grandfather you know that what can i do and i always say deposit them there it's the best place to have uh, soldier memorabilia letters things to go and they archive it but the money came in. Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg became impresarios for it. Uh, Who funds it now? Um, it's it. They do it, it fundraises. I mean, they have a lot of corporate support. Um, it's speak you. It's a museum that just grows, grows, and grows because of the corporate support. There's not a company that doesn't want to support um, honoring. Our World
1: War II vets. So you taught at Tulane. You taught at the University of New Orleans. What did you teach?
0: Um, always the same. American history, uh, Brian, but I break it up. I've taught over the years. My mainstay, I guess, is Cold War history, but I do history of the presidents. Uh, I've done civil rights history, uh, environmental history. Um, Those are really the core one. Military history. And I break them up right now. I mean, my core courses, the last few years, I'm doing one class on the 1960s and 70s and then a class on presidential history.
1: Before we leave the the bus trips and all that, as you look back, what was the most successful uh, one stop as far as you could see the reaction of the students?
0: Well, we there are many, but one that came to mind. So we went to Plains, Georgia, to build a Habitat house um, with Jimmy Carter. And he would make catfish for us, and he would tell us to eat the catfish. You know, you hold the catfish and pull it. And and something about all the students thought he was a good man, a humanitarian. So they were all on best behavior around Jimmy Carter. You know what I mean, everybody was like, we dress better. And... Um, and we built a house and the students got out there with the hammer and the sun and, you know, we would, you know, Carter's, both of them were helping and Miller um, Fuller, who was creator of Habitat. And I, it was pretty special. And they like one night we were all eating and Carter's like, I have to take a call from Cuba. And I think he had a call with Castro. So he came back and told his, my students about his call and, and, um, to Cuba at that point, where they were like, oh my God, you know, it was a secret service around while we we're building the house type of thing. Right in Plains? Uh, it, it was done in Americas, uh, right next Close. to Plains, yeah. Okay, what's another stop? Um, Well, one that ended up having long-term ramifications in my life is we would stop in Whitty Creek, Colorado and see the gonzo writer Hunter S. Thompson. And Hunter would not autograph his books. He would shoot them. And so they read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and he would put it up against a tree and go poof. And half the students thought, "What an idiot! He sh- this is what a stupid stunt." But then, about half of the students, were like, "Oh my God, it's so cool!" Hunter Thompson shot my book, um, and out of that, I realized Hunter had a uh, he had alcohol issue, uh, alcoholic, and um, and um, he had a great archive of material, but didn't know what to do with it. So I was, he asked me if I would come back sometime and help him organize it. And I ended up doing two volumes of letters of his, one called The Proud Highway, one called Fear and Loathing in America. But that introduction to Hunter grew out of the magic bus. I want to come back to <clears throat> Hunter Thompson later, but there
1: was an incident at a Holiday Inn, I believe, where somebody, a couple... Gave you a copy? Was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, or which one did? Yes, that's the one that we What's that story? And how
0: did that? What was your reaction to that? I'm not sure. I remember. Well, tell me what it was.
1: Well, you just I, all I remember is that somebody gave you a copy of the Hunter Thompson book that got you interested in him in the first place. Um, well, I don't
0: know. You know, that was more that's was jack kerouac's on the road okay on the road I got it mixed up yeah but uh yeah the idea of the idea of somebody
1: out of the blue saying here kid you you gotta read this i got
0: that handed to me when i was at worked some at a holiday inn in perrysburg ohio as a banquet porter setting up tables and they how old were you um i got in as soon as i could i wanted to work um I seventeen, I guess whatever the law was. I got in working. I'd work as many hours as humanly possible. Rain, snow, sleet. Um, I just couldn't believe I could get cash like that. <laughs> Make, <laughs> making money. Uh, and uh, and so we would put up the tables. And um, but somebody then handed me the book on the road by Jack Kerouac. I had mentioned uh somehow of about liking Bob Dylan, and they had had the book and, and just gave it to me uh as gifted it to me and it was special, so I've done that occasionally to people and out in respect to that If I finish a book and if I'm on an airplane, I got a book in my bag, I'm talking to some younger person, or so oh here's a good book I just read, and just give it to them. I had somebody give me a a book of the uh, French writer Celine on a train and In um, Europe, once you know, you're reading and you're talking, well, oh, you haven't read this person, you know, here and read it. But that fit in on the road a little bit to the magic bus, too. It's the idea that in America, the roads has a romantic appeal to go travel and see America by the road. And, uh, you know, um, um, I'm even now, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this age in life, would love to write the history of Route 66 and tell the story of that road you know so i'm I'm interested in these things i'm interested in eisenhower's interstate highway system i mean i'm interested that the longest highway in the world is i-90 that connects um you know seattle to you know to boston and and we don't think that it's the longest in the world but that one strip is and uh And I miss the back roads, the blue highways to the uh, William Least Heat Moon, uh, you know, the find the road not taken and do that too. But the interstates make travel convenient.
1: Go back down to the University of New Orleans. From there, you went to
0: Rice? Uh, I went to Tulane and I ran a Theodore Roosevelt Center at Tulane and uh, I met my wife, Ann. I had written a book on Rosa Parks, um, and that's an interesting story in itself, because on these magic bus trips, um, we would I would take kids to, students to Montgomery, and there was one road sign that said Jefferson Davis Boulevard in meet Rosa Parks Avenue kind of thing, and you take a photo of that, but there was no memorials for Rosa Parks and I couldn't believe it and then I would look and there were honestly about 200 books on Martin Luther King Jr. and there wasn't one serious adult book to read on Rosa Parks she wrote a book with Jim Haskins called um, About Her Life, she wrote her own autobiography but no scholar had ever looked at it so out of that I then had the temerity to bring these students and bang on a door of the housing project really a uh, uh, where she lived during the Montgomery bus boycott. And a couple answered, and um, they were very nice. And I said, Can my students see? And it's so tiny. Rosa and Raymond Parks were living in just like a shoebox in Montgomery. I mean, and that brought you home to how well, she had no funding. She was, you know.
1: Did all the uh, kids go in the house? <laughs> yeah, they let her
0: in. They were living in there, and they let us see it all. You know, we. Uh, I did that by myself not too many years back when I was in Chicago to the birthplace of Walt Disney, uh, where he was born. And I, took a, I had a car take me, and I just randomly knocked on the door. And uh, there opened it, and there was like Mickey Mouse memorabilia, but this family just lives there. And they said, oh, you want to see it? And they said about every two weeks somebody, usually from Europe, Comes and bangs on their door, but I went and I saw the bedroom where he was actually born, Disney, and the place. I do things like that. It's, uh, uh, but we we um, I then started realizing I wanted to write a book on Rosa Parks. Let me come back to her later, okay. uh, but go
1: back to uh, oh, Tulane. Tulane, and then to Rice. Yeah, Tulane, and then from Tulane to Rice. Now you've been at Rice if I calculate right, fourteen years. Yeah, you're in the Baker Institute.
0: Yeah, part of it, and the history department,
1: and the history department. But you have said, I've seen you in many interviews, say that you are center left politically. Yeah. What are you doing in the James A. Baker, uh, the Third <clears throat> Institute?
0: Oh, you know, I have a lot of. Uh, uh, well, first off, uh, James Baker is an incredible person to talk to. I was telling you about Dean Atchison and. Paul Nitz, uh, I mean, I think as secretaries of state, George Shultz and uh, James Baker the third are outstanding secretaries of state. They were just outstanding. And um, and Baker and I uh, get, got along well. Get along How'd well. How'd you meet him? How'd you get into this? Um, I went. Let me see. So uh, the. It really was more about the Rice University recruiting me. The president David LeBron, and wanted me in the history department. But in order to get the proper position, they wanted me to double, you know, be a history and in their public policy center, which was is named after Secretary Baker. Um, Bush forty one was living there by Rice in Houston. Um, And so the Public Policy Center, Baker Randway, he would bring in world leaders all the time. I mean, it's astounding these young people get to just meet everybody. I'm talking across the board, current world leaders he would have. You know, if somebody, prime minister of Japan comes to Washington, they might end up giving a talk for James Baker on campus and students get to interact. It's pretty special. And... um, yeah, Baker has written me letters of recommendation for things in life and the like, and uh, um, they call him Bake. Uh, the, the, if you're going to do the right biography of him, I always would title it The Velvet Hammer, because uh, that's really what he is. He's very um, um, genial and kind and warm, but if you get into a business thing with him, look out. He's a tough customer. But you live in
1: Austin and this is in Houston. How do you do that?
0: Well, in between the big event when I was at Tulane was Hurricane Katrina and uh, you know, we we felt the deprivations of that in 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 endless ways. And at that time, I was getting offers from universities quite a bit, almost poaching me out of Tulane, people saying, we'll offer you this and this. Um, I was debating between a few um, schools, but Rice. my big thing was I wanted to do three classes every fall and then zero because I really wanted to do writing and research. And if you can't do it with two, one... So Tulane told me you could keep doing. We will will do two one, and I said no. I'm being, I'm not bluffing. I'm leaving if it's not three zero, and Rice, Baker and LeBron offered me the the three zero, and at that point I loved Rice, but for one thing, Brian, I have um, I have asthma, and I it was in remission for most of my life, but I went in to help house clean and debris from. Katrina, and it got into my lungs some of the debris, and I had to go to the a, a Jewish Memorial Hospital in Denver for respiratory and I just don 't want to breathe bad air because of that, and Houston with the refineries plus the humidity, you know I, I just thought if I have a choice, it dawned to me could I live in Austin, uh, which is more amenable to my interest, which is hiking, kayaking, outdoor living. Um, and and could I do that as a commute? And I could if it was three zero, meaning if it was I only had to commute in one semester. See, if I had to do it the other way, I'd have would have moved to Houston. So we moved to Rice. We had three children, and I just decided, kind of a maverick fashion, I want to raise my kids in Austin. I picked the city where I wanted to raise them from all of my travels, and then I love Houston. It's a great cosmopolitan uh, center. Obviously, I just wrote a book on NASA and going to the moon, and you know I'm engaged in it. So I feel I'm blessed to have both cities in my life, which is is exciting. I love both. I just drive. I leave Austin at about nine at night, and I'm in in two and a half hours. I listen to the radio. Uh, I used to call my mom um, all the time on the commute because she likes to talk for about an hour and it's, uh, and that would eat up the, some of the clock. And it's bit, now I enjoy it, particularly the drive from Austin to Houston. Coming home, you know, I'm, I'm less interested because you start hitting some traffic getting out of Houston. Douglas Brinkley is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.